0: So this evening we're continuing uh, our progress through the Acts of the Apostles. All the previous sermons that I've done uh, on this book are on the Belvedere Church website for those who are interested. I've got four points tonight. Three of them are quite short. One of them, the second point, is the longest. Now Acts 25 and 26 take place in A.D. 59. Porcus Festus is the new Roman procurator for Judea, taken over from his predecessor, Felix. Festus inherits Judea at a bad time, and as soon as he arrives in the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders there, along with the Jewish leaders from the Roman political capital of Judea, Caesarea Maritima, Urgently demand that Festus has to hand over a certain prisoner who's held on remand by his predecessor. This prisoner is the Apostle Paul. Festus says in Acts 25, verse 24 that the Jews shouted that Paul ought not to live any longer. And the matter of Paul is a hot potato. The Jews in Jerusalem want Paul dead, but Paul is a Roman citizen. And at a trial conducted by Felix, it's proven that Paul has not broken either Roman nor Jewish law. Felix had let Paul languish in prison in the Roman fortress at Caesarea as a favour to the Jews. When the new more naive regarding Jewish politics, Roman procurator Festus, is installed, he quickly has Paul tried again But he also discovers that Paul has done nothing wrong. All the charges against Paul are issues of interpretation of the Jewish religious scriptures. And much of what is said, Festus records in verse 19, was about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Festus says in verse 20, I am at a loss to investigate such matters. He's out of his depth politically and he just doesn't know enough about the factions in Jewish politics and religion Festus to sidestep Roman law but he is under pressure to please the Jewish leaders so Festus wants Paul to go to Jerusalem and be tried there Paul knows that he will be killed at the first opportunity the Jews have so he appeals to be tried in Rome in Caesar's court. After checking with his legal officials Festus knows he has to send Roman citizen Paul to Rome but Festus has a problem he doesn't know what charges to put on the charge sheet that will accompany Paul to Rome. A few days later Acts twenty-five thirteen records that King Herod Agrippa II arrives with his sister Bernice to pay his respects to Festus, the new Roman procurator of Judea. Herod uh, Agrippa II is, is a devout Jew, though he's a loyal Roman vassal. He grew up in Rome where Claudius was emperor. In AD 59, which is the years that Acts 25 and 26 are set, he's 31 years old. Herod Agrippa is the brother of Drusilla. Drusilla was the wife of the previous Roman procurator Felix. So when Roman ally, Roman educated client king Agrippa arrives to pay his respects to the new procurator, Festus eagerly grasps the opportunity to have the most knowledgeable Jewish Roman official give his opinion on Paul's case. And so help Festus solve his problem of what to put on Paul's charge sheet as he is sent from Rome. As Festus says to Agrippa in Acts 25, 27, I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Now, Agrippa knows the Old Testament scriptures and he knows of Jesus of Nazareth and he even knows of the Apostle Paul, so he's eager to hear him speak. And Festus seizes the opportunity to have this friend of Rome, a knowledgeable, well-educated Jew, advise him on what to write on the charge sheet accompanying Paul to Rome, and so solve his problem. And my second point is the presentation of Paul to, the, to Agrippa which is described chapter 25 verses 23 onwards to the end of chapter 26. And we see in verse 23 the great pomp and circumstance of the king's presence. Verse 23 describes how King Agrippa and Queen Bernice enter the audience room, all the great men of the city of Caesarea Maritima are there and all the high-ranking Roman officers, as well as Agrippa's own high officials are present. Also present is the procurator Festus. On the one hand, we have this full spectacle of a visit of a king. And then on the other hand, we have this prisoner, Paul, brought in. Agrippa, knowing that Paul was a Roman citizen and knowing his reputation as a leading Christian, perhaps he heard it from his sister Drusilla, Uh, he keeps Paul, he lets Paul freely recount his story to everybody in the audience room. And Paul, for his part, says he's pleased to speak to Agrippa, Uh, Acts 26 verse three, he says, because the king is well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Paul explains verse 6 and 7 that he himself is well known to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and that he was brought up in the strictest Jewish sect as a Pharisee. And verse 6, it's because he believes in God's promise of the Messiah that he has repeatedly been on trial. This promise of the Messiah, the King of Israel, who would redeem his people, is the one great hope of all Jews and not just Paul. In fact, says Paul, verse 7, it's the main reason that the Jews serve God night and day. It's amazing, says Paul in verse 8, that the Jews of all people could charge me with believing this as if it was a crime. Because all Judaism is about this belief that God will send the saviour of his people, the Messiah, to them. As the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2.36, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead declares that Jesus is both God and Messiah. But the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem dominated by the Sadducees just won't accept it. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in God. But they just won't accept that God can raise the dead. Paul says in verse 8, Why should anyone who believes in an all-powerful God deny that God can raise the dead if he so wishes? But he understands their position and he says, I myself doubted it until I was confronted by the raised Jesus of Nazareth myself, which is described in verses 9 to 15. Now, Festus, in uh, this presentation to Agrippa, is confronted with the Jewish scriptures for the first time and it started easily enough this presentation for Agrippa and Festus but then it begins to hit home they begin to understand what Paul means by what he's saying now this is not just a, a technical exposition of the interpretation of one scripture against another first we We see the effect it's had on Paul it's life changing stuff and now we'll see uh, that Festus is faced with truths that he gives lip service to but he doesn't actually believe and we'll see the effect on him the Roman view of the gods now every Roman is familiar with religion and the associated rituals Rome had twelve major gods and many, many other gods. Rome was full of temples to the gods. Augustus Caesar had restored 82 temples in Rome, and these were dedicated to various gods: Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Castigan Pullux, Hercules. And Augustus even deified his own uncle Julius Caesar and erected to a temple a temple to him in the forum. And every temple had its priests and priestesses and rituals. And the temples were expensively and exquisitely decorated with gold and precious objects and sacrifices occurred there regularly. Religion was embedded into the very fabric of Roman society. Every Roman emperor from Julius onwards was also the High Priest, the Pontifex Maximus. Almost all political and civil life was interwoven with religion. And it was a key part of everyday Roman culture. Every Roman home had their own household God. To whom constant sacrifices were made by all the members of their household. In the month of January, there were 32 official religious festivals alone so the romans are familiar with gods in fact they'd taken much of their theology and their gods from the greeks and these many pagan gods were capricious and had to be placated and bribed to look favorably upon the romans and the greeks and whoever worshiped them they had to constantly prevent the gods from becoming angry with the romans by offering the gods sacrifices Now each god has his or her own area of power or operation. There was a a god of love, a god of hunting, a god of war, a god of good fortune, a god of the sea etc. And there was no overall defining plan that the gods were implementing. In fact the various gods were at war with each other, frustrating each other's plans. They didn't have a predetermined plan and they aren't sovereign in their in their power they act on contingency and paul confronts festus with the character of the one true god of the bible and the contrast between him and the roman gods is stark the unity of will purpose and the absolute sovereign power of the god of the bible makes his plans assured. The God of the Bible, the God Paul is talking about, is acting in the world today. He brings about his promised will and his plan by changing events and people today. Festus is familiar with gods that are afar off and that you pay lip service to and who you have to bribe to be on your side. Paul is talking about a God who raises the dead, a God who makes a covenant of love with his people, about a God who helps individuals like Paul every day of their life, verse 22. A God who predicted and promised the Messiah, the great Redeemer. And this Messiah, declares Paul, has lived within their own lifetimes. The God of Scripture, the God of Paul, is not an impersonal God. He can be known intimately and be involved in your life on a daily basis. And this is an astonishing revelation to Festus. And Paul makes Festus think about the character of God and the ability of God. A God who raises the dead and so actually can and does do anything he pleases. Actually, think about it. What is the use of a God who cannot raise the dead or solve our greatest problems? Our greatest problems surely are sin and death. And if God can't deal with those things, who can? It's coming too close to home for Festus. Festus, though steeped in pagan religion, has a low view of God and his powers. Can God really raise the dead? Will God really raise the dead? Has God already raised at least one who was dead? Has God already raised one who his predecessor, Pontius Pilate, met and executed? One who Agrippa's great uncle met? Has God raised the crucified Jesus? Has this Paul standing before him now actually met the raised Jesus several times it all becomes too much for Festus he's out of his depth verse 24 he shouts out Paul your great learning is driving you mad it's making you go insane Paul has seen this reaction before in Gentiles and about three and a half years earlier he's written to Uh, the Gentiles in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.23 to the church in Corinth, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The Gentile Festus cannot believe in Jesus Christ. The deep truths revealed about the one true God of the Bible are too much for Festus. Is it foolishness to believe in many gods who cannot achieve their own ends? Or is it better to believe in one God who sovereignly rules this universe? Paul tells Festus that not only are these things reasonable and true, verses 25 and 26, but there is clear, publicly available evidence about them. And so Festus a pagan who at least outwardly acknowledges and worships many gods cannot bring himself to believe that God could have raised even one dead man. Now, Agrippa and the scriptures, it starts, as I said, easily enough for Festus and Agrippa. Agrippa particularly, who is a, an observant Jew, has been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures since his earliest days. But there is no corresponding Roman or Greek written record of God's dealing with and promises to the human race. They have no such body of work, the 39 books written by 40 or more men over a period of a thousand years. Yet speaking with one consistent voice to mankind, promising them a redeemer who would provide salvation. A salvation based upon faith in a holy, gracious, loving God, rather than a sort of self-salvation built upon feeble, frail, and fallible human effort. And Agrippa is well acquainted with both the strict sect of the Pharisees in which Paul was raised, and also of the Sadducees, the upper-class group, who ruled the country and who oversaw the worship in the temple. He knows that the Sadducees deny all forms of resurrection to the human being, both Jew and Gentile alike. And so they cannot conceive of, or indeed allow, a dead Messiah to be raised back to life. And verses 6 and 7, Paul reminds Agrippa that the Jewish nation and the king himself know that God has promised his Redeemer, his Messiah, and that he shall rule his people in righteousness. And in verse 8, that God is powerful enough to raise the dead. Paul admits, as we've said before in verses 9 to 14, that he's allowed himself to be misled and to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And he did so right up until the moment Jesus stopped him in his tracks and gave him a new purpose for his life. And verses 19 to 21, as a result of obeying this new purpose for the Last 22 years, the Jews have been against Paul, just as Paul had formerly been against the first Christians. And that's how he came to be rescued by the Romans from the Jews in the temple court. And so held in protective custody these last two years and is now testifying before Festus and King Agrippa and the great and good of Caesarea verse 23 24 what I say about Jesus says Paul about Jesus suffering dying and being raised is exactly what is predicted in the scriptures which you King Agrippa which I the apostle Paul and which in fact all Jews believe so it's at this point that Festus makes his outburst in verse 25 that Paul's great learning Is driving him insane. So after Festus goes public with his outburst, Paul speaks to Agrippa, to King Agrippa. Verse 25, these things he says are both reasonable and true. Verse 26, you King Agrippa are familiar with what I'm saying. These things are public knowledge because they were not done in a corner. The whole of Judea knows about Jesus' ministry, his execution, and about the empty tomb. And they know about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul puts it to Agrippa in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa knows what the prophets wrote, and that the life of Jesus clearly fulfills what was written by, for instance, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 regarding God's suffering servant but Agrippa doesn't want to be put on the spot or be shown up as superstitious in front of his mainly Gentile audience he dare not deny the truth of the scriptures yet he did not want to go so far as accepting all that Paul said because he didn't want to appear foolish in front of all these great men mainly Gentiles in the audience So Agrippa makes a joke of it. Paul, do you think you can make me a Christian in such a short time? It is, of course, a stumbling block to Jewish King Agrippa that the Messiah was humiliated and crucified. Plus, his Roman upbringing may very well cause him to consider a a crucified Messiah as foolishness as well he certainly can't admit to believing in front of these sophisticated Romans. So in verse 30, Agrippa ends the audience by standing up. He's the king after all. And then with Benice and Festus, he walks out of the audience room, followed by all the chief men and officers. My third point is that Paul has fulfilled his Christ-given purpose. The question, of course, is do you? Acts 26, 16. When Jesus Christ, Christ is simply the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. When Jesus the Messiah appears to Paul, as recorded in Acts 26, 16, he gives Paul's life a new purpose. In verses 16 to 18, he says to Paul, rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Paul, you will serve me. Paul, you will be a witness that you have seen me, the risen from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth. Paul, I'm sending you to your own people, the Jews and to the Gentiles, and you are going to preach to all of them about me. That is Paul's Christ given purpose and Paul does as he was told do we Paul says in verse 19 to King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven are you am I obedient to the Word of God that has been given to us so clearly Verse 20, Paul says, I preached to those in Damascus, in Jerusalem, to those in Judea and to the Gentiles. Verse 22, I bore the testimony of Jesus Christ to both great and small. And verse 29, Paul says, I would that all who hear me believe. What's your purpose in this life. Are you fulfilling it? what's my purpose in this life am i fulfilling it paul fulfills his christ-given purpose jesus christ has a purpose for both you and me in this world today do you know it are you living to fulfill it or are you just passing through this veil of tears trying to get by as best you can my fourth point is what's Christianity, what's the purpose of Christianity, what's it all about well it's answered in verse 18 the Bible teaches that God always has had a plan for the whole human race and it mentions in verse 22 uh, you know as promised consistently over hundreds of, hundreds of years in the Jewish scripture by Moses and the prophets, it says that the Christ, the Messiah would suffer, would die and would be the first to rise from the dead. These prophecies clearly describe the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth. The risen Jesus via his church would proclaim light to both Jews and Gentiles, that is to everyone, of all nations in the whole world. What does this light do? What is it for? Well, the answers are there in what Paul says in verse 18. He says that God would open our eyes to turn us from darkness to light. This light lets us see ourselves as we really are. It lets us see ourselves as God sees us. And we find out that actually our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions are characterised by darkness. We, it says in verse 18, are under the power of Satan and Jesus has come to turn us to God. Knowing by Christ's light, the light of the word of God. That we displease God in all we have been doing. By us turning from those things and turning to God, we receive forgiveness of sins. We receive this forgiveness on the basis of the suffering that Jesus, our Redeemer, suffered in our place on that humiliating and painful cross. And we also receive a place. It says, amongst those sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a place for now and a place forever. So Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, by his death and resurrection, solves our two biggest problems. He forgives us our sins and he raises us to everlasting life with him and all God's people in heaven for eternity. How wonderful is that? We get this forgiveness that Jesus provides, it says in verse 20, by repenting of our sin and turning from our sin to God. We have to acknowledge we are sinners and that we are displeasing to God and then we have to turn to God and ask him to save us by his grace and power in Jesus Christ. The end of verse 20 reminds us that we have to prove our repentance by our actions going forward. The great hope of the Bible, that there is life after death, and that our sins can be forgiven, by trusting in Jesus Christ is true. The once dead Jesus is now alive and speaks to us through his word, the Bible. Accept the testimony of the prophets and apostles. Trust in Jesus. And then on that great day, as Paul wrote, to the Colossians in chapter three, verse four. When Jesus Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Amen.